Welcome back to our Change Cultivators listeners. And today we have a very special treat in the studio for you as we look at change leadership from a slightly different lens to what we've done um, in the past. Today, I have two very different um, but very complimentary guests in the studio um, to talk about a topic that's very close to my heart, uh, change leaders from birth to the boardroom. Children can only aspire to what they know exists. Um, it's a really interesting topic. We're having a look at, obviously, change in the corporate culture, but also where does change start? And it starts many, many years in terms of mindset before we've even walked into a boardroom. Um, so just a bit of background over the few months, past few months, we've had the band of sisters in the studio um, talking about breaking barriers uh, to drive transformation success in companies. And much of our focus um, with that conversation has been on the real tangible need uh, to do a proper job of tackling diversity versus you know, putting a label on it in companies where you've got, you know, a sideline woman running the the diversity team um, and really mm -hmm. what the sort of change that needs to be made in companies to drive this properly. Um, on the other side of the coin, I've been doing a lot of work in the education space uh, with a company called Kabuni, um, really looking at the sustainability mm -hmm. and the suitability of traditional education and how this is no longer setting mm -hmm. children up for successful futures that are moving into a digital world, into very new jobs, very different dynamics. Um, so without further ado, those of you who followed our recent series with a band of sisters will be familiar with Laurie Turba Marcus, um, who's in the studio with us today. She's an experienced independent director, a board member and advisor, to advisor with 10 years of board service to a number of companies. Um, she has had history with companies such as PepsiCo, Peloton. Uh, she works with Del Monte, so no stranger to the, the corporate boardroom. And then we have uh, Professor Gur, who's a global education advisor, a board director, an advisory board chair and member. Um, he's held many global director education roles um, at companies like Kidzania, and he's also the group chief executive of the Children's University Trust of the UK. And he has a very honorary OBE from the Queen for his work in education. So Professor Gur and Laurie, welcome and say hi to our listeners. Hello and thank, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure and a privilege. Hi, everybody. This is Laurie. It's good to be with you all today. Great. Well, we're so glad to have you in the studio to talk about this really um, important topic. And I just want to touch quickly as we, we dive in. Microsoft released some research um, in its class of 2030 uh, report uh, where it outlined that new thinking and practices are needed um, to ensure children develop both cognitively and social emotional skills necessary to succeed um, in both personal and professional lives. Um, you know, and they were looking at the class of 2030 as needing to develop deeper cognitive skills um, in areas mm -hmm. such as problem solving, socioeconomic skills, relationship building, self-awareness, self-recognition, um, and how these are increasingly becoming important in childhood and then as they, you know, move into adulthood. Um, and, you know, this principle and thinking needs to show up both in schools and at home. Um, mm -hmm. Professor Gur, I'd love you to share with our listeners uh, some of the research findings you did with Kidzania um, in your 2007 research report, I think it was, um, particularly with the role that upbringing plays on a person's view 
of their genders later in life? I'll, uh, I'll do my best. Thank you. The, uh, just, <laughs> it's just, very just, interesting research. Just a brief observation, uh, Rosin, if I may. I was I was fairly fairly recently preparing for a, a conference speech in in Turkey in Ankara, and I was looking at the 1923 education report of the City of London, and the report concluded that by and large the children were doing well at school and were getting the grades that they needed to get. But when they left school in those days, I think at the age of 14, mm -hmm. they were not well enough equipped for the world of work. Mm -hmm. Fast forward 99 years, and you could repeat that statement. Mm -hmm. uh, and that would be pretty much the same, wouldn't it? And then in, a, in one of my previous roles in 1999, I did a, a piece of research at Manchester Airport where we asked 250 HR directors, the skills that they were looking for when they were interviewing 16 to 18 year olds. And we, we listed those skills in a very nice slide. And at another conference fairly recently, I showed those skills. And people asked me how I put that together and how recent it was. And those skills were all about the things that you mentioned. So, so firstly, I think not as much has changed as we sometimes tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. And maybe, mm -hmm. maybe we haven't really paid enough attention and maybe we've left too much to schools and we assume that academic attainment equals mm -hmm. acquiring the skills at the same time. So, so mm -hmm. at Kidzania, over, the, over a number of years, Kidzania are cities for children, age 4 to 14, where they can engage in the world of work. So you can... You can land an aeroplane or you can be cabin crew or you can perform a heart transplant, present a TV program, clean windows, make beds in a hotel, work in the supermarket or be an actor, you name it. Around 60 jobs per Kidzania. You can earn Kidzos, Kidzanian money, which you can spend or save. And so there are there is a, a global kind of economy of this of, of this thing called Kidzania in around 25 different countries. And one of the things I did a number of years ago is I, I asked um, the analysts to find for me on the very first visit to Kidzania, very first school visit, which was the first job that a child would choose. And then once we, we had that analysis, 600,000 children globally, once we had that analysis, uh, we then looked at who the children were, whether they 4, 14, girls, boys, black, white, urban, rural, which country where they're from, rich, poor. And, uh, and the analysis essentially showed that all stereotypes are set at the age of four. Boys are pilots and girls are cabin crew. There's almost no change between four and 14. Big question about STEM education in schools. Mm -hmm. uh, almost all girls choose activities below their age range, whereas the boys are on par with their age or above. And I think for me, that's an issue of confidence and self-esteem. Uh, children can only aspire to what they know exists. If you are poor, you don't choose to be a pilot. So you go with what your menu of life's experiences is. The more disadvantaged you are, the fewer experiences, the narrower the menu. And, uh, and then the, the other thing which I thought was quite remarkable was that there was globally almost no difference between the countries. There's, there's, there's something about the globalization of growing up. 
But what we also discovered was we didn't need PhD thesis to find the remedy. And, and, I'll, and I'll give you the one example, if I may. At Kidzania London, we had at the time an activity which was a Formula One, Formula E activity. So essentially it was about uh, cars on petrol, electric cars, what are the benefits? And then there was a proper Formula E car and the youngsters, as, as, as the kind of activity, would then change the tires on the Formula E car, just like you'd see on TV. Okay, We had two members of, of staff in there, in their overalls. The youngsters would also wear their overalls and their headphones, and it looks, it looks like the proper thing. And I parked myself outside there for the best part of a month and, and observed. And when we opened first thing in the morning and we, we made our two members of staff, two male members of staff, the attendance in the activity was 100% boys. You could see the girls walk past. They would witness the activity. They would witness the two male members of staff. And they would walk past. Two hours later, we would change it to one male and one female member of staff. And almost in an instant, the percentages shifted to 80-20. Every day. 80-20 to the girls' staff. So, so 80% boys, 20% girls. Okay, which was a which was okay. a twenty percent improvement, if you wish. Then two hours later, mm -hmm. we would put in two female members of staff, and the percentages changed to sixty five thirty five. Now we did this for about a month, and and it, it 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 was continuous that that change occurred. My argument with with the business was, it doesn't cost you anything. Apart from putting yourself in somebody else's shoes mm -hmm. and giving it some thought, you had female members of staff and you had male members of staff anyway. So I didn't ask you to appoint anybody. I just asked you to think and to, to display some emotional intelligence. And I think that's been my message to many HR directors. Why do you immediately ask how much it would cost? Why don't you just look mm -hmm. at what you've got and actually deploy your emotional intelligence and move things around a bit. But of course, I think the other thing is worth saying is that if that applies to, to what were our members of staff, everybody in this instance is a teacher. The parents lead by example. Yeah? The, the teachers lead by example, but whole communities. And we just need to put ourselves into the children's shoes. We need to to quote the little prince, remember that all grown-ups were once children, but only few of them remember it, which is incidentally why we see all these horrible no ball game signs. I, I just wanted to flag that one up and say that we need to get rid of those. Um, and, and I think that's what it is. And the message needs to be consistent through the school, into the home, into the world of work. And I think there's also the thing about the world of work, they need to put up or shut up. They've got to stop sitting on the fence and tell everybody what to do. They are teachers too. They too are role models who can make mm -hmm. things happen. And I think that's such an important thing to realize that, that as is the mantra in my wife's elementary school, every child is everyone's responsibility. We can't just dump that responsibility on the school. And as a final example, mm -hmm. if I may, mm -hmm. if all stereotypes are set at the age of four, and in our schooling system, we don't engage with our young people about the world of work until they're 14. What we are actually doing mm -hmm. 
is we are allowing the stereotype to cement for 10 years. And then we kid ourselves that we can still change things. So I think it's simpler than we make it out to be. We just need to show a willingness and an emotional intelligence to make that happen. And, and we'll make mistakes along the, along the way, by the way, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. And Professor Gu, you, you gave me an example when we spoke earlier about children, particularly women that grew up in homes where the mothers worked versus the mothers didn't work. Um, and just how that affected, I mean, I'm a mother of a young daughter and there's always that guilt on, you know, how big a job do you go for next? Because I'm not going to be at home and, you know, what's my child going to think and feel? But actually in a lot of your research, um, it came out saying, you know, girls that were in homes with mothers that, do you want to, you know what I'm talking about? I'd love you just to go through that because I found that really interesting because I think a lot of mothers have that guilt when they have young children, but actually it's setting quite mm-hmm. a, a ball rolling in the minds of their children mm-hmm. early on. I think we, we need to just, uh, we need to think of ourselves as, as parents, as certainly in the first three or four years as role models and probably as the role models. I remember with my eldest daughter for the first four years of her life, it was daddy, this, daddy, this, daddy, daddy, daddy. I was, I was God, right? That was, that was it. That was brilliant. And then she went to school and all of a sudden I, it was Mrs. Poole. I didn't know who Mrs. Poole was, but I didn't like Mrs. Poole very much because all of a sudden Mrs. <laughs> Poole was more important than I was. And in a sense, what happens is children are sponges and observers. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And the parent is the role model. So the, so the parent who works and goes to, goes to work, it goes out of the house to work. One doesn't love their child any more or less than the others. That, that's, that's just a given. And it would be a nonsense to say anything else. But, that, but the act of doing this, if we talk to our children, the act of doing this becomes the role model. It becomes the norm. What we mm-hmm. do in that conversation and in that relationship with our youngsters is we establish norms. We set the ceilings of aspirations. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And so, and similarly, of course, the mother or the father who stays at home as part of that dialogue, that also mm-hmm. becomes another norm, not a better one, just a different yeah. one. And I think we need to talk to our children more from a much younger age, explain how it works and why it works. And and then we will get there. We have to remember that we can't just leave these things to others. And it works, doesn't it? You know, my 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 wife has worked, has been out to work all all her life. It is it is the norm. It is what what her daughters, our daughters, also aspire to. I think there is there is incidentally something that is much more important than that. And that is what we all struggle with. Can we demonstrate that we found the work-life balance? Yeah. And mm. and and, mm. and and that, and that, and that, that goes into a different thing, is it? Because that's about quality mm-hmm. rather than what you do and how much you do of it. But it is the role model issue. We are our children's mm-hmm. first role models. We set the tone, we set the standard, and we give them the platform from which to grow. Yeah. So I was and just going to comment on, on, oh, sorry. I was just going to add on yeah. to something there. 
Um, I think any of us that have children have realized, and I've got two daughters, they're in their 20s now, and I feel like when I first had children, you always think you're a role model when you when you're when you're on and they're watching you. And of course, the first thing you learn as parents is they watch you all the time. They listen when you're, you know, saying four letter words you shouldn't be saying. You think they don't hear you if you're arguing with your spouse, your partner, or they do. Um, and they pick up not the most intelligent things that you say, but when you have like weird grammar ticks or whatever, they say those things, you know, they don't say, you know, Sally and I are going to the store. They go, me and Sally. And I'm like, where did they get that from? And then, you know, my yeah. husband and I will say something poorly and I'm like, oh, that's where they got it from. But I think what's, um, so I think one thing just to add on is this notion of being a role model. You don't get to choose when you're a role model. You know, children are sponges. They watch everything that you do. Um, and then the other thing, it's interesting, like you, Roz, I went through a lot of, many times I always worked outside the home uh, when I was raising my children and uh, as did my husband. And we, um, I went through a fair amount of guilt about that. And two things, one is somebody said to me exactly the words, I'm glad it's borne out by research, is this notion of you're being a role model. They said, your children are watching you. You're getting up in the morning, you're exercising, you're eating a good breakfast, you're going off you know, to the workplace, you're accomplishing big things, you're, you know, providing, uh, you know, wealth and, you know, sustainability for your family and saving for college and all those different things that my husband and I were both doing. They said, you're being a role model doing that. The other thing that you're being a role model for is they hear you on the phone. I mean, this was before hybrid work. They're older now. But they would hear me back in the days of, dare I say, voicemail, right? And I'd say, hi, this is Lori Marcus. I'm leaving a message for so-and-so. I want to comment on blah, blah, blah. Can I ask for your help? They hear the way you talk to other people. They hear you the way you treat other people. Do you treat people with dignity? Are you screaming or yelling? You know, they're listening in as you're on a conference call or now in today's world, a Zoom call. So I think there's a lot of different opportunities to be a role model mm. as a parent. And the last thing I'll say on that topic, when I went through a particular time of feeling guilty about this, maybe they were in middle school, which I think is hard, uh, hard for a, a lot of children. It's just an awkward age. And I, I was really thinking about if I should take a break or what I should do. And a friend said to me, I'll never forget it. She said, you know, you have great kids. Like they're really, they're wonderful children. They're honest and they're caring and they're good people. And in my head, the next word was, despite the fact that I go to work. <laughs> and she was like, you have just made up that phraseology of despite the fact. It's not because of, it's just an end. You have amazing kids and you go to work outside the home. And any other uh, any other word besides and, you're just making it up in your head. Yeah, yeah. Because I think this, you know, we've spoken a lot about the gender issue, mm -hmm. you know, later on in life and in corporate work. And a lot of it does stem from this, I think, because mm -hmm. women, you know, and we spoke about this with the sisters, is that a woman will also take a certain type of role in yeah. a corporate environment. You know, talking about, we used an example and Professor Gerber were talking about in their book, you know, if a woman is, delivers work late, you know, in a corporate environment, the natural inclination to a lot of women is, I'm so sorry this is late, where a man will not say that. A man will say, well, here it is. And look, I've added X, Y, and Z, you know, so it's quite a different confidence thing. And I think I see mm -hmm. this also now as a mother, you know, what we're talking about is this 
Now I must apologize for going to work because I'm doing my children a disservice. But then if we mm. look at it, what Professor Gur is talking about, that is setting the role of the gender in the home, mm -hmm. right? Is who's yeah. doing what and how. And I think it's quite exciting to feel we can still have it all and our children are not going to be scarred for life. Mm -hmm. And I, I suppose it's about quality, not quantity in terms of time when you are at home with them. Mm -hmm. But I'd love to just understand in your corporate experience, how is all of this childhood stuff showing up in the workplace with, with regards to the work yeah. you guys are doing? And, and you know. So I'm fascinated. I could sit here and listen to Professor Gurr talk all day. And what I'm, every time he says something, I'm kind of writing it down of like, oh, that's the research explanation of why it exists this way. So it's almost like we could, Raz, I won't overtake your podcast, but I feel like we could literally go chapter by chapter and <laughs> Professor Gurr could say, oh, that's because, and, uh, you know, yeah. when people are children, XYZ happens. But just a couple examples that come to mind. So um, Professor Gurr was talking about this notion of, um, I'm going to get it slightly wrong, but sort of girls playing kind of below their age in terms of what they're choosing and boys playing up. And there's a chapter in the book and it's called, um, it's called Be Like Bill. And the idea is the research suggests that men will go for a job, you know, they'll apply for a job or say they deserve a job if they have 50 to 70% of the qualifications and women won't apply for a job or ask to be promoted into a role unless they have call it 95 plus percent of the qualifications. So it's interesting from my perspective, I see that as a way that things show up today. I think listening to Professor Gurr, I'm realizing that, oh, this didn't start when they were in college or when they were in their early 20s at their first role, is something that's been socialized in uh, since early days. I think that's very true. And I think they're also, this is a very complex thing because the other thing also to remember is that children are multidimensional. So whilst we're talking girls, boys, women, men here, we must remember that, mm -hmm. you know, are they black, are they white, are they rich, are they poor, are they urban, are they rural, which country, all mm -hmm. those things. It isn't just the boys girls thing it isn't just the gender just the gender right. issue but i think the other thing that is is right. this that the the role model thing is so important such an incredibly mm -hmm. important uh, aspect of of what we do but we can't teach the role model thing so i would put mm -hmm. next to the role model that experience is everything so actually mm -hmm. Give me 25 girls of a very young age and I will find somebody, whoever it is, and I'll put them in a room together and I'll leave. I don't need, I'm the teacher, but I don't need to be there because I've just facilitated the experience. Children learn best when they're, when they're allowed to be curious, not, not mm -hmm. send the questions in first and all that nonsense, but actually spontaneous mm -hmm. because then you can begin to ask things, then you can. So, so the phrase children can only aspire to what they know exists came out of my experience when I was education director and my offices, it was a, a private public a sector funding arrangement. My offices were in Manchester airport in one of the most deprived parts of England. And, and I, my job was funded by Manchester airport. And I went and talked to six year olds and said, tell me the jobs you can do at the airport. 
And the answer I got were the things they could see or the things they knew. Now, because of where their children were from, they didn't know about air traffic controllers, etc. So they knew about and they'd seen about 35% of all the jobs that existed at the airport. So by implication, you couldn't aspire to the other 65%. And when I said to those youngsters, look, you can fly planes, six-year-olds told me, children from here don't fly planes. Okay? So that, that ceiling, so if anybody comes to me and says that children lack aspiration, I get cross because we do that for them. So, so you, you put mm -hmm. that heavy mix into a pot and shake it, and you're in a pretty unhealthy place. So, so the role model mm -hmm. thing is not, I'll buy you a book and I'll let you read a chapter about X, Y, Z. That's important too. But actually, I'll let you meet. So inside the airport, we build classrooms. This was pre-9-11. And every time a flight came in, we asked the pilots to come and talk to the youngsters or the cabin crew or the mechanics or whoever it was, the chef on the airplane. And they went away with, with a richer menu of experiences. And then you begin to aspire. And then also because you've met these people, you become, in inverted commas, courageous enough to go, I can do that. So if you put the black female pilot mm -hmm. in front of seven-year-old girls, they can see. You've made the learning visible. You, they mm -hmm. can see that they can write their own narrative of the possible. And that's what, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. what we need to create. So, so Professor Go, how, how can parents, because if I look at the corporate world, you know, the majority of leaders and good change leaders in the workplace are parents. So it starts at home, okay? Mm -hmm. So I love these examples you're giving. What are some of the practical things you think parents can do to, you know, at an early on in their kids to really start driving this mindset. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at home, you know, as you love to say, two o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon, what are the type of things parents can be doing to set this ball rolling for them to be more successful, or more aspirational later on when they get into I would ask a very simple, because I think simple is brilliant, right? So, so I would ask a very simple question. Does your child know what you do? And if the answer is no, then I want to know why not. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean the mm -hmm. entire instance, but surely they should know the job title, where you go, and why haven't you driven past on a Saturday. And incidentally, I'm not just talking about the board directors. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Right. There's a guy who cleans windows. He lives nearby. Once he cleaned windows for a little bit, he set up his own company. Then he discovered that people also needed the guttering cleaning. And he started doing that. And then he discovered that some of his customers were old and in the winter couldn't do the shopping. And then he does that as well. He's an entrepreneur. He doesn't drive a Bugatti, but he's an entrepreneur. So, so there are, we all can have that conversation with our children. And what we all have something in common that is we do something. Not whatever it is, but we do something. Mm -hmm. And we all have something else in common that is that we love our children. And the third thing we have in common is we want their life to be better than ours. And I think they're the simple step. So talk to them mm. and take them places and actually drive. My kids must be bored now, but I do get in the car and go, I used to work here. This is what I do. This is what I do. As does my wife. And, and, and actually, the <laughs> other thing is, dare I say it, 
you know, sit around the dinner table and have a conversation, put the phones away, turn the telly off, and just talk a couple of times a week and talk about how was your day and let me tell you what I did. It is quite simple. And then widen the conversation. What does your uncle do? What does your aunt do? What did your grandparents do? It, it's kind of, my kids know that my grandfather couldn't read and write. They know that he was a coal miner. They know that he died of very bad lungs and arthritis. Why would they not know that? It's a, they, they, this is who they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so we need to actually, we need to get yeah. to know our kids and help them get to know themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. And it is simple things, right? It's not, it's just being present and intentional. And Laurie, I'd love as a as a woman, you know, having yeah. been in the, the, you know, what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah. So one of the themes, and again, I'll say this sort of half as an author of the, uh, the book and then half as a, a woman executive, as though I'm two different people. I always point to the power of language. So I love what Dr. Gurus, Professor Gur is saying in terms of the, you know, talk about what you do. And I would say that's both ways. If both parents have, you know, working outside the home, talk about that. If you are in one of the situations where maybe the dad is the lead dad or the lead parent and that parent is, uh, is staying at home um, with the parent, talk about that as well. I mean, one Side story, we can talk about this later if you remember the whole take our daughters to work day, which of course, like everything, mm. morphed into take our children to work day. Feel free to ask me to comment on that later. I have strong <laughs> thoughts. But the parallel, the sort of the brother program to take our daughters to work day was always meant to be take our sons to the home day and really highlight what goes into taking care of a home and all the things that you know, young boys sort of take for granted and many children take for granted. But I think one of the things I just want to point out is this whole notion of language. And um, Roz has heard this. One of my colleagues just goes absolutely apoplectic about, I mean, we're having a conversation about children, very appropriate to say girls and boys. But by the time you get to be in the workplace, the fact that we are calling women girls in the workplace, I mean, you would never say, oh, we just hired this boy from Harvard. I mean, you can't even say it out loud. Look at you, Professor Gurr is like cracking up. You can't do it. And yet we say it all the time oh, we just hired this new girl in accounting. Uh, Have you met Sally, the new girl in accounting? And again, when you say that, you might say, well, what does that mean? Language is, again, I'm a consumer marketer by training, so I really believe in the power of language. But language is really, really, really powerful. So when we say, have you met the new girl in accounting, our brain doesn't immediately say, oh, I'll bet she'll be the CEO someday, right? So language really matters. And I guess just one point that I would make, Roz, when we think about what we can do, I would just encourage everybody to be really conscious of language, starting at very early days. I'll give you one quick story. Back when my girls, I'll say girls, they were little at the time, um, there was a whole kerfuffle about the talking Barbie that came out that said something like, Mm -hmm. oh, math is hard. And it was, I'm not, I'm not big on cancel culture, but they received a lot of flack for it because it was really building into the stereotypes of like, girls aren't good at math and science. And, and there was a whole, a, a whole bunch of things that happened, but it talked about talking to girls about, um, like the love of math and science and balancing a checkbook and not just so, oh my God, just so in such a lazy way, feeding them into this, you know, gender stereotypes, right? So language matters, how you talk about things matter. And then one thing I would challenge everybody to do is like when you see little children, you see somebody 
pushing a baby, little stroller with a toddler, we say things like, oh, she's so pretty, right? I mean, we just mm -hmm. automatically sort of fall, default to talking to little girls about how they look, right? Yeah. And it is, I feel like language is, is just, it's so powerful. And so at that time between the Barbie that didn't like math and this research that came about about stop giving girls this notion of their entire self-worth is based on how they look. So I encourage everybody to do this. Like next time somebody posts a picture of their child or grandchild or niece or nephew or whatever on social media, or you see somebody pushing a stroller and your first reaction is to say, oh, she's so pretty. Um, just say to yourself, would I say something about that little girl that I wouldn't say to a little boy? And if you would say, oh my God, she's delicious. And you would have said the same thing about a little boy, like, oh, it's just delicious. Great. Yeah. Go ahead and say it. But if it's only something that you would say to a young girl, don't say it. Don't say it. Yeah. When you make conversations, adults make conversations with children and they talk to a little girl, oh, I like your dress or you're so pretty. And then they ask a boy and they say things like, are you playing baseball? <laughs> they say all these kind of sports things. So I would just encourage us. I think we don't even realize it. I feel like I've been on a, you know, my daughters are in their 20s now. So I'm on a almost, you know, 25 year journey of trying to really understand the gendered language that I use and just be on a lifelong journey to just just get better I couldn't every day agree more. I think uh, what's also interesting as yeah. you as you're as you're speaking uh Laurie one I, I I observed that the that that Barbie in later life became the current children's commissioner in England who still says that physics and science are too hard for girls it's 2022 so that, that tells you something about the direction of travel here. Uh, I, I, the language thing is an interesting one because I, I agree entirely. I think on the other hand, we must be careful that we, do, that we don't believe that semantics can solve the problem because, because sometimes we fall into that mode as well, right. don't we? And then I, I have a friend mm -hmm. who wrote a book. Uh, is Bill McFarlane and the book is called Drop the Pink Elephant. And it is about the words not and no and how and how we should avoid using those and i recall walking mm -hmm. many, quite a few years ago walking around a newly built school uh, a secondary school and um mm -hmm. and by the end of the guided tour i knew everything the young people weren't allowed to do yeah don't walk on yeah. the left don't do this don't do that i think right. i think language overall sets the tone of expectation and we need to really mm -hmm. think mm -hmm. and, and, and sometimes mm -hmm. stop and think. And also from a parent's point of view, you know, I know there are many books written, but every book I've read hasn't been quite like my, my parenting experience. So we do make it up as we go along. And it's okay, and it's okay that we get it yeah. wrong sometimes. That just shouldn't mean that we should stop trying. That's all, I think. Yeah, Ross, can I make mm -hmm. one more point about language? I, you'll probably want to pivot us, but sure, the power it. of language, again, is something I have so much passion around. And we talk about this in the book, but there's kind of a like a section that I, I think about, which is all around lazy language. And so, again, I love that we're talking about what starts in childhood, but I see it. I mean, my observation as someone who worked in corporate America for 30 years, and now I do executive coaching, and I sit in corporate boardrooms, and Unfortunately, things have gotten more nuanced, but nothing has really, really, really changed. But like an example of lazy language. So 
we'll, you know, I'm sure you've seen this, you'll be doing people planning or something like that. And they'll be talking about a man, often, a, you know, kind of, I would say, a sort of a cisgender straight white man. And they'll say like, oh, he's a great guy which is about the laziest language in the world. It doesn't talk about, you know, mm. where he is. And on it this. doesn't say anything. It doesn't say anything. Yeah. It doesn't say where he is on the sales yeah. competency model or finance competency model or any, you know, he's a great guy or, oh yeah, we know him from Sigma Chi or we know him from Chode or whatever. So there's lazy language that sort of has all these like positive connotations to it. And it doesn't really invite people to probe. And then on the other hand, we say things often about women, people of color, underrepresented minorities, and we'll say things like, just not sure she has the gravitas to be a vice president, for example. So we use these lazy things like gravitas, or another one we used to throw around a lot uh, when I was growing up in corporate America was strategic agility, things that you kind of couldn't put your finger on, executive presence. Yeah. And again, to the extent yeah. that you can unwrap it and get into, well, what's underneath it? Let's talk about that. And what's the impact of that? That's fine. Yeah. But I find people are lazy. They sort of say the thing and they let it sit there. And again, it tends yeah. to be very gendered. Yeah. And it's about being this intentionality. And the reason we're looking at from birth to the boardroom, I mean, mm -hmm. we have a podcast that focuses on corporate and we focus on change leaders in the business environment. And I think the lens that's being shed on this conversation really is, you know, this is, this is, as you say, are you a different person at work or then you're at home? Like this is a thread that it's who you are in your DNA as a change leader, right? Yeah. And you're a change leader to your children, you know, in their growing up years right through to being a change leader or, or growing change leaders that are then going to go into the workplace. I love the thing about lazy language. Professor Gur, you said, do you talk to your kids? Do you sit down? Do you have specific conversations with them? Oh, my mom's in marketing, but what does that mean? You know, like, do you, are you, is it the effort you put in, right? And that is what a change leader is. You can, a parent who's a change leader is going to drive a change leader to then go out into mm -hmm. the workplace. Laurie, as you say, you know, even in the workplace, it's who but are the it, people it, that are really an, driving the, it the, has the, emotion the different to it and movements? Passion, right? Because, because what would, yeah, mm -hmm. what, what would effort, you, when you effort. were a child, what would have turned you on, so to speak? Somebody talking passionately, be passionately about what they do. So when my, when my wife talks to visitors about the headship, in the school and her job and her community, people go quiet. Mm -hmm. Why? Because it comes from the heart. It isn't a job description that you're reading to your kids. It's actually telling them why it matters, why it matters to mm -hmm. you. And and what you actually see is, wouldn't it be a great world if everybody did something that they actually liked? How cool would that be? I mean, that would be a, a, a target to set, wouldn't it? And, and, but I think it comes out of those conversations, out of that understanding. And what was very interesting is we did a piece of mm -hmm. research with a company called the Insights Family. And there was a piece of research in 2017 where eight to 12-year-olds, 1,000 eight to 12-year-olds segmented and all that, were asked, what do you want to do when you grow up? Which incidentally is the wrong question because we should ask, who do you want to be like? But, but the question was, what do you want to do? And of course, the answer was in 2017, vloggers, bloggers, and YouTubers, 83%. Right? So along comes COVID-19. And I rang the CEO of the Insights family, Nick, uh, about eight months in and said, can you run that again? Similar, similar segmentation. 
and it did. And 73% of children wanted to be teachers, doctors, or nurses. Right? I'll leave that there because I think I think it's about the heart. Because right? mm. they, they saw here, who right? the heroes were. They mm -hmm. saw, they had the opportunity to engage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the heart, yeah. yeah. And it touched you, yeah. No, it's absolutely fascinating, right? It's not... You know, and, and as I say, we focus on adults and mm -hmm. change leaders in the workplace, but it's so threaded in us. And Laurie, I would, you know, because we're talking about emotion and where your upbringing comes from and how you end up and show up in the workplace as a, as a, as a leader eventually. Do you think, like, if you didn't have the exposure as a child, you know, we're talking about the ideal scenario where you, you know, do you think you can still be a great change leader later on in the corporate world? Do you think it's something that can be learned later? Or do you think that your destiny sets you forever and you either, you know, you know, it, if you don't know something exists, you're doomed forever. You know, how does this show up for <laughs> yeah. a change leader in their, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s in a corporate <laughs> environment that's going, goodness, I didn't raise my child like that because I'm, I'm, <laughs> thinking of some of the younger parents now going, oh, good, I'm taking these tips. I need to, you know, for my child to be successful later, I need to plot, start planting the seeds now because it's my role, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah. for other people who have sort of got older or through the process, is it doom and gloom or, you know, how, how can this show up? How can this show up to still really drive this change? Yeah. So I, I want to make one one comment about what you're talking about, about young parents. And again, I live in a, I live in a world of like very intense young parents that have tutors for their kids at very early ages so that they can, you know, take the AP courses. So they get a tutor the summer before they have baseball coaches by the time their kids are, you know, in fourth grade, because they're thinking about where they're going to get into college. Like I live in this very intense that I would make is I feel like something parents have to be really careful about today and I'll get to where it comes in the workplace is there's so much focus, like I said, in the little town that I live about sports, 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 coaches, whatever, but also about like AP classes and, you know, calculus and algebra and physics and things like that. And the thing that I think has always been an issue, but is exacerbated by, I don't know, pick a number by a hundred because of social media is all the soft skills. And so if there's anything in one of the advisory boards that I'm on, a company called Devon Academy, they teach uh, soft skills uh, to, you know, college and then young, young adults coming into the workplace. Because with all the focus on, you know, teaching people to code and things like that, the place that we really need to be conscious of is all the things like adaptability and influence leadership and giving feedback and communication and active listening. And to your point, Roz, I feel like so many parents are focused on the things, the sports, the mm. physics, you know, the AP classes, getting on the travel soccer team, all of that. And what they're not realizing is, you know, young people sitting and staring at a phone all day long um, as difficult as it's always been to be a middle schooler, um, the fact that people are now just sort of sitting on a phone and not interacting all day long with other people, I, it already is an issue in the workplace. People can't write and they're just not as good at communicating. I think it's only going to get worse if we don't address it in a really, really purposeful way. So I'm not sure if that was the question that you asked, but I guess my general point of view about is it all doom and gloom? 
No. Um, I think we <laughs> underestimate how much advantage people have who have been given every advantage, kind of, you know, as young people have great role models, all of that. But, you know, I love to point to the example of like my own mother who grew up extremely poor, one of five children, oddly in like a one bedroom apartment with a border. So don't ask, but, you know, she grew up extremely, <laughs> extremely poor. She didn't go to college because women of her age didn't go to college. And actually, when I went off to college, um, she started going to Bergen Community College and she took, you know, one class at a time. And, Amazing. you know, 10, uh, I don't know, 10, 14 years later, when I was pregnant with my first daughter, my mom graduated with an associate's Aww, degree at Bergen Community, got teared up. May she rest in peace, graduated with an associate's degree from Bergen Community College. And um, and so I think that while it's easier if you've had every advantage, I'm just a, believe, a person who believes in kind of lifetime of learning and being inquisitive and all of that. And so I do believe you can, you're not sort of, uh, you know, doomed to be the mistakes that maybe your parents made or others made that you do have the ability to constantly learn and grow. But I'm also very conscious for many of us who grew yeah. up in loving families, you know, with a lot of financial security, yeah. we do sort of start out on second base or third base. And Laurie, how does this show up for leaders in companies? So you're a leader now, you've got a team, you've got very different mm -hmm. people coming in. They're coming in from very different backgrounds. They've had different yeah. um roles, you know, different yeah. um, scenarios. Some have had the opportunities we've spoken about. Some haven't ever seen it, you know. Yeah. And, you know, the one's going to be more confident than the other in a team, mm -hmm. right? How yeah. do you as a change leader drive a productive team knowing, you know, because the soft skills are so important. I mean, we speak to HR leaders all the time. And one of the things they're saying is post-pandemic, we're trying to hire leaders with empathy, now, how do you demonstrate mm -hmm. empathy on a CV or resume, depending what country you're in? So I think as a change yeah, leader, I, I'm going to say two things that, that I feel like you might roll your eyes out um, because they sort of they seem like cliche things that people say. But I really um, I really mean them. And one is to embrace true diversity. So it's diversity of, you know, gender and race and background and style and all of that. I think many people talk a good game, but they really stop at sort of representation. And many, many, I dare I say, most people are comfortable with people that kind of look and feel just like them. So one of the most important things as a leader, there's a ton of research to prove that truly diverse teams are much more productive than homogenous teams. That's just a true statement. Um, so I think embracing true diversity as a leader is really important. And part of that, you say, well, how do you do it? Part of that is about creating an environment where you encourage people, not just allow, but encourage people to speak truths to power. Because we all have our own biases, you know, some conscious, some a lot of unconscious biases. That doesn't make us bad people because we have unconscious biases. But the only way you're going to know about them is if you truly invite people to point them out. And then what's really important is when people do that, when people push back productively on anything, whether it's a business issue, whether it's a, you might not realize this, but when you say X, Y, Z, it makes me feel ABC, whatever it is. If you're one of those people that again goes thwonk 
and yells at people. You have just, you might have said, speak truth to power with your words, but your actions have just said, never speak truth to power. So I think this notion of like embracing true diversity and really encouraging and motivating people to push back in a productive way so you can have productive dialogue about everything from culture, you know, to statistics and data and analytics. Yeah, no, I love that. So, I mean, some closing thoughts just on, you know, just five, I'd love to just get each of you and then, I, then I'm going to wrap up just advice to adults, any adult at change leaders and you're a change leader at home as a parent, you're change leader at, you know, in the workplace, you're change leader by driving teams and ultimately driving the economy, you know, that started out, uh, you know, with the birth of the people driving at work. Any tips you want to close on, particularly for someone who's going, I really want to be a change leader in this area. I want to drive change in terms of, you know, nurturing mindsets, people to push themselves, to be able to do, you know, better, think more broader, any closing uh, comments or um, advice I think for our listeners? probably that you can't, that it is, that you can't really do this on your own, but that you need, you need to create a culture around this and that that's mm -hmm. okay. Right? So, so I would, I'll give a, a very simple example if I may. So one might argue that in certain communities, it is harder to find role models of a certain kind than it is in other communities. It is harder to find board directors or Harvard graduates as role models. Um, just go and borrow some. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's one thing. So if you live in a certain community, I don't know, if you live in, in Sheffield where I am now, okay, and you work with youngsters from a disadvantaged part of Sheffield with, with younger ones, ring Oxford University, and say, have you got students from Sheffield who are at your university? Can they come and talk to our youngsters? So what, what I am as the seven-year-old child, I sit there and my first question is, who are you? My second question is, where are you from? And the answer will be, I'm from Sheffield. I'm one of you. And this is where I go. And it's one of the top universities in the country. And this is how I got there. And essentially, if you can't get them in your own community, there's nothing wrong with that. That just happened then go and find them somewhere else, borrow them. And what I would say to the people in this, in this example, to the Oxford graduate or the Harvard graduate is, offer yourself up. Yeah? Recognize that you've got something to give to other people as well. Because I think, and, and, and quite often, surprise, surprise, I think schools, schools that are at the heart of the community will be schools who will facilitate those things. And there's that wonderful thing. And I think this, for me, this came out of, in part, out of the pandemic. Uh, mm -hmm. Barcelona Football Club, as in soccer, has a motto that is Mesca un club, more than a club, because it's owned by its fan base. I think schools, good schools, are more than a school. And they will create those things. But they can only create those things if people offer themselves mm -hmm. for the greater good to make a difference. Because actually, you're not just the change leader to your family. You are the change leader to your community and all who are part of that. And when we start to create those things, we we just eventually will end up with a world that's a little mm -hmm. bit better than the one we're, we're occupying now. And 
And if that's what we achieved, that'd be amazing, right? So, so I think it's, I think it's as simple as that, really. Mm. Mm, I love that. I love it, Laurie. Any, yeah, any I would just from your side. Yeah, I would just add that I think this notion—it's it, building on what I said before about being a lifelong learner. And as much as mm -hmm. like a few minutes ago, I just put down social media, but there are some things that are very powerful about the digital age that we live in. And I feel like today you can not just you can learn, you know, from your experience and the situations that you're in, but it's also a lot quicker and easier to learn from other people's experience. And I think you have to just be voracious about addressing your own. We all have ignorance in certain areas, addressing your own ignorance, getting smarter, getting more educated. And I'll give you an example. We were writing the book, you know, we had done a lot of research, um, read a lot of secondary research, did our own primary research around uh, just, you know, all around gender bias in the workplace. And so I thought I was pretty special in this area. And a, a colleague of mine that I know, just um, general business woman by the name of Nita Malik, she has, um, she's head of diversity at Carta, and she has a podcast with a woman named DC Marshall, and it's called Brown Table Talk. And they talk a lot about the same kind of scenarios that we talk about in our book, but they address it from the perspective of black and brown women. And I listen to their podcast mm -hmm. every week. And every time I go into it thinking, well, I know that how this is going to impact people and what the answers are. And every week, week after week, I learn something because as uh, Professor Gurr said earlier, like women aren't all women. There's women, there's older women, yeah. younger women, poor women, rich women, there's brown yeah. women, there's black women. And even though I've spent two years plus a career lifetime trying to learn everything that I can about gender bias in the workplace, I don't have the lived experience of being a black or brown woman. So that's a very small example of something I listen to religiously because I always learn and it, costs, and it causes me to sort of confront my own ignorance about things. And I think everybody yeah. can do that. Get out of your bubble, get out of your head, learn not just from your own experience, but learn from the experience of others. Of others, yeah. No, that's wonderful. So, and this is a good place to wrap up because I think um, the, the key things I've taken out from this wonderful discussion and uh, I'd love to carry on forever, but I can't. <laughs> um, but I think really just to start with your point, if I had to summarize four things, it's be, you know, be that lifelong learner because... Mm -hmm even if you're in that upbringing or that environment that starts you in life when you don't have any, everything or anything, there is opportunity to carry on learning and be a sponge. And mm -hmm. Professor Guru, as you said, just ask. You know, if you're an adult in a community with kids that don't have access to something, ask. Open the doors where you don't have them because people are more willing to give time than you think. Um, and I love, Professor Gur, as a point two, you talking about thinking differently. So, um, you know, you don't have to spend a lot of money in companies to drive some mm. of this change. It's just rearrange how you're doing certain things. Think differently and get creative. Um, and then really, you know, a change leader, leader starts long before the boardroom. Mm -hmm. So you're a change leader to teach someone else to be a change leader and you become a change leader yourself. And, that, and then finally, that culture is set at home mm -hmm. first culture set at home then culture set in community and then it is set in a company and a boardroom so you've got to look at an individual as a whole mm -hmm. not just you know 
in pieces. And, and I think that's really just such, you know, wonderful nuggets. So there we go, Change Leaders. We've had a, a very different take on the topic today. I hope you found it very interesting. Um, and as we say, just really today is about looking at an individual as a whole, you know, where they started, what they're surrounded by. That CEO didn't turn up mm -hmm. uh, to be the CEO just overnight. You know, there's a lot of pieces that that contribute to how people get to to where they are. So I hope that's given you some different perspective on our, our usual topic today. So Professor Gur and Laurie, thank you, thank you so thank you. much. Loved having you in with us today. Mm -hmm.